Welcome back, hustlers, to the 5 a.m. Hustle podcast. I'm Namish. And I'm Jack. Uh, today, our guest is Paul Tasner. Um, Paul, thanks so much for coming on. Oh, my pleasure. My pleasure. Absolutely. Yeah, so if you want to go ahead and um, tell the listeners about your story and your journey um, and where you are today, go ahead. Sure. I'm happy to. Um, the... Um, well, I guess, I guess the, one of the first things I wanted to say, you guys were, were kind enough um, to, sh- you know, to um, talk about what you thought was my amazing journey, which, you know, I mean, I, I like hearing people say that, but I think one of the things that's, uh, quote, amazing about my journey is, um, is, is that there aren't that many amazing journeys like mine. It, it shouldn't be an amazing journey. It should be what I did should be more commonplace, but it's not. It's not for a lot of reasons. And ageism is definitely one of those reasons. Um, and um, I guess, uh, you know, in a nutshell, I, I, I lost my job at the age of 64. I was working for a, working for a consumer products company here in San Francisco. And um, I've always worked for somebody else. I've, I've had, you know, jobs with, you know, several different companies, large and small, since finishing my education. And I've had good jobs, quote, good jobs, but I've always worked for somebody else. I was never my own employer. Um, I always dreamt about it and uh, aspired to be my own uh, employer, but um, just didn't have the guts to strike out on my own. There was always a a good financial uh, reason for not doing so. college tuition for children, mortgages to pay, you name it. I always had a good excuse. Um, But at this time, at the age of 64, and being sadly rather unemployable because of my age, I thought this, there was no evading it now. This was the time, if I really wanted to do something special, I had to grab it now or just forget about it, frankly. So um, I did. I, uh, I decided to um, launch my own business. I gave it a lot of thought. It took probably a couple of years uh, just um, working in a consulting capacity and talking to a lot of people, getting ideas. But slowly but surely, the, the idea formed. And I launched a business um, in uh, 2011. That was nine years ago. I launched a business where we design and manufacture packaging for consumer products using waste material. So we use paper waste and agricultural waste, and we use the fiber, the cellulose fiber in waste uh, to form packaging. Uh, good examples of what we do, but something we don't do uh, are egg cartons. That's, that's the kind of packaging that we create, but um, where it's molded into different shapes. But um, egg cartons are, are a whole different industry to themselves. They're commodities, and we do um, more premium packaging and uh, for electronics and cosmetics and uh, pharmaceutical products. So, um, but that's the it's still the same basis, though the same kind of technology that uh, that has been creating egg cartons for for decades. Um, I launched the business nine years ago, and you know it's been growing every year, not dramatically. And I think, um, I think the reason it hasn't been growing, there's, there's several. One is that um, it's hard to talk companies out of their plastic packaging. That's, that's our goal is to replace plastic packaging. Um, when I say plastic packaging, I, I, don't, I mean the single-use disposable plastic packaging that's littering our planet. Um, it's very hard to get companies to give it up. Um, it's... It, it does the job. It's cheap and easy to acquire. And, um, you know, we, uh, we're at a little bit of a disadvantage economically. Our packaging is just a fraction more expensive. And it's really hard to talk companies out of it, unless they too have a passion for uh, creating a better planet. Um, but every year it does grow. It's, it's been growing every year since we've uh, launched the business, but not dramatically. And one of the other reasons that it hasn't grown dramatically is quite honestly, we haven't, we haven't been hell bent on 
making this business grow, you know, doubling our sales each year or something. That has not been our goal at all. Um, our goal, and you touched on it earlier, Namish, um, our goal is to be successful, but not in that way. And the way we define success is, are we excited to get up every day and go to work? Um, do we like what we're doing? Do we think we're leaving the world in a little bit of a better place than when we got here? Um, and do we still have time for our, our friends, our families, our, our lives? And the answer is yes. So um, we've tried to build the business around our lives. It, you know, we don't, we don't go out the door and commute to an office, you know, at, from nine to five every day. We mostly work from home. And now with COVID, we definitely work from home. Um, and our, our, um, our manufacturing is outsourced to other companies around the world. We have six partners around the world. So we have no brick and mortar. We have, we have no fixed assets. Um, our office is anywhere we want it to be or wherever, wherever our laptop is, that's where our office is. And it's really integrated very well into our lives. So when I say I feel like I've been a success, it's not, it's not because of my salary. Um, in fact, I probably earned more many years ago while I was working for somebody else than I'm earning today. But, um, but I feel incredibly successful. I mean, how many, how many people can say that each day that they're just excited to get up, excited to see what's in their email box, um, feeling good about what they're doing, having their kids and their grandkids proud of what they're doing. Um, I never felt that way. And I, I had a lot of good, good jobs, so to speak, but I never felt that way. Um, they were still jobs. And um, this is a whole different experience. And it's been a phenomenal experience. That's really interesting. Um, you touched upon a lot. I think one thing that really stuck with me about what you're just saying is the idea of like you integrated work into your life instead of integrating your life into your work. Yeah. Um, and I think that that's something that in American culture specifically is so, um, or not even just American in general, um, like you see it with these like heavily industrialized countries. Um, you see that culture where it's your life revolves around your work. Um, and it's very interesting because if you go to like, um, Switzerland or Sweden or Norway, these countries, there's a complete cultural shift. And the idea there is that you work as a part of your life instead of it being your life. Right. And I think that we need to make that shift more in the United States because I think that um, for far too long, we've been working ridiculously long hours, working for other people, kind of like you were for a really long time um, and losing that sense of purpose. And I think that when people are working with a sense of purpose, they can work less hours, but still be so much more productive. And like right. that also, it's weird because in our culture, we think about um, time as a trade-off for money, which is honestly probably the stupidest thing ever. Um, you say you work $15 an hour, but if you phrased it like, I just sold an hour of my life for $15, then it's like, okay, this trade-off is definitely not worth it. Um, <laughs> Right. But like, but everybody like is going around going like, oh yeah, I want to work for this company. Like, let's say you actually break through um, Silicon Valley or whatever. And you're like, I want to work, like I, I want a $30 an hour salary. Um, and still like selling an hour of your life for 30 bucks. I don't think anybody, that's like, that's like a t-shirt <laughs> selling an hour of your life for a t-shirt. But if you sell an hour, like sell, uh, like make a, make a sale and make a certain amount of money um, that means so much different than like making selling your um selling time for money i think we need to make that shift yeah yeah um we because of the nature of our business because it's so it's so uh, keyed into environmental awareness um it's probably no surprise that um much of much of our, our interest is in europe uh we have we have a number of client companies um that are european and they do indeed have a different culture than us. I mean, they, they're still, of course, interested in making a profit and all the rest of that. But they, they, they definitely have a different approach. Um, 
sorry, I just lost the screen. They definitely have a different approach to, um, to work and life than we do here. And, and they're still successful, profitable companies. So yeah, uh, I think we can do a better job of integrating our, our lives. Um, I've, I, I certainly feel like I've done it. And, uh, you know, I have a business partner and she feels the same way. And um, yeah, we're, uh, we're, you know, we couldn't be more pleased with, uh, with what we're doing and how we're doing it. And uh, some people say, um, um, are you sorry you didn't figure this out earlier? Um, would you would you would you like to have been doing this, you know, ten years ago or twenty years ago? And yeah, of course, but um, it is what it is. I mean, you discover these things when you discover them. You you can't you know you can't go on uh, lamenting that you didn't do it earlier. It, it, you know, that's not doesn't make much sense. Well, frankly. it's a regressive, it's like a regressive way of looking at things. Like what can right. you do about it, right? Yeah. Um, and it's at a certain, at a certain point, you have, I feel like you have to stop looking at the past as a template for the future. Yeah. Um, it's so, it can be so, like, obviously there's so many aspects of like our lives and society, like are banked on precedent. Like this happened to this person because of X, Y, Z. So it should happen to me because I'm also doing like X, Y, Z. Um, and yeah, that's true a lot of times, but I think at a certain point you have to like take a step back and be like, no, I can change things. Um, and that's kind of what you did, right? Like you were like, everybody around me is like retiring at this age because they like did their life. Um, but you took it as like, a, no, this is a new step instead of I'm closing out my life. True, true. And um, one of the interesting, um, one of the interesting fallouts, I would say, I guess, um, of doing this when I've, when I've done this um, I don't feel like I have that much in common with my, my age peers, the people who are my age who are, you know, playing golf twice a week or, or, you know, volunteering or whatever it is they do with their retired lives. I don't feel like we have that much in common anymore, frankly. Um, um, and the interesting part about it is, that um, I, I, I've done many things since launching this company with younger people, either younger people working for us, um, because we do have you know, different roles there. Most of them are part-time or per diem type roles, mm -hmm. but um, we do have younger people that work for us. Um, and we do meet with younger people who work at our client companies as well. And I feel like I have more in common with those younger people, and in some cases much younger, than I do with my own age peers. So it seems it seems that we we share common goals about the environment. We share common interests in packaging and uh, manufacturing, mm -hmm. and we have so much more to talk about. Um, it's uh, it's it's been an interesting journey. Yeah, I. Uh, uh, my wife is truly retired. Um, she's a nurse, um, and her 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 peers are other retired nurses in many cases. But okay. she has more retired people in her social circle than I do, and um, I can see the difference, you know, in the way we react to our age peers. That's mm -hmm. funny. I'll say I one can't. more thing and then I'll let, uh, I don't know, shut up and let Jack talk. But, um, um, it's just, it's, it's hilarious to me that Jack and I sitting here, um, we, it, we find it hard to find people in our age group that um, like share the same interests and goals as we do. And it's funny because you also uh, have people have, have trouble finding people in your age group that share the yeah. same interests and goals. Unfortunately, our age groups are 60 years apart. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> But is, is that true? Do you guys find you you feel like you're you're a bit of uh, um, a bit on the on the outer edge or something like that? That that, that most of your peers don't share your interests. Yeah, I think. Well, I think a lot of it comes to the culture of say like high schools um, in the United States or in just in general because a lot of kids are like, oh, I just want to go to college 
or yeah. I just want to focus on like going to parties or just hanging out with my friends. And me and Namish um, have a greater focus on our kind of our lifelong vision or where we see ourselves in five to 10 years rather than where we see ourselves in three months. And so that connection to a greater vision in the future kind of um, creates a disconnect between us because like we may want to stay in on a Friday night and like read a book or like make a podcast yeah. instead of like going out and just hanging out with our friends and doing something that may not be productive to our lives in the future. And it's not that we aren't able to find friends or connections. It just seems that sometimes there's not a greater connection with um, the the mass population of students that we kind of connect with on a day-to-day basis. And so we have to, we've been finding those connections with people that we've been interviewing or friends that we've made through um, this whole journey. So it's been great. Sure. And if you attract people like that, I think it helps you grow. And I know um, one of my kind of mentors now, I met him through an interview. And then now I talk to him almost on a daily basis. And we're only like five years apart. But since he has kind of goals that are more aligned with mine, he's able to help me grow instead of just being stuck with the people my age. Oh, absolutely. And you know, you you guys are going to find, I mean, and you probably realize this already, that, you know, every year, every year, in your life from here on out, your worlds are going to become bigger and bigger and bigger, way, way beyond the boundaries of, of the high school of Naperville or even of Illinois. Um, and, you know, and I'm sure that's going to be true in your cases, you guys are, um, you know, you have that kind of approach to life. Um, so, uh, you know, things are going to be changing constantly for you in, in a positive way. So, um, uh, wow, I, I think what you're doing is, is, I think it's amazing. I think it's fantastic. Thank you. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, I might, if you don't mind, I might, I might share uh, the, the podcast with my, uh, my granddaughter uh, uh, up at Niles West because um, I think she has kind of a, a similar mindset uh, to you guys and uh, – I think she'd be uh, excited to listen to the podcast. So, yeah, awesome. Yeah, of yeah. course. And um, what's very interesting is what me and Namisha have kind of found is that when we're able to kind of connect either with just me and him or with people that are our age that have kind of the same goals as us, we're able to collaborate in a way that creates like a really strong culture because we understand each other. So how have you been able to do that in your own company? Because I'm sure with such a specific environmental goal in place, you had to find people that wanted to support that cause as well. So how did you initially go about building that culture that um, would be successful in both your, your profit goals, but also in your environmental goals? Well, you know, it wasn't as hard as you might think, because, and, and mainly because I've been, I've been, um, you know, I've been working for for many years, and the last decade or more, I've been working in environmentally related work. So my my circle, my 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 contacts um, have all been in that area. So I've made I've made a, a number of contacts and and deep contacts in many cases with lots of people uh, who do share the same kind of goals. Um, and Northern California is kind of like ground zero for environmentalism, et cetera. So um, it's, you know, you can throw a stone and hit, some, you know, anywhere you can throw a stone and, and be sure to hit somebody who has the same passions as you. So uh, that hasn't been a challenge for us, fortunately. Um, in fact, we have an intern now um, who, who is a, a high school junior uh, here in uh, uh, Northern California, uh, and her high school actually has a, a program on on the environment. It's a special program that I think there's maybe like a hundred students who chose to go through the program, and their their whole curriculum is kind of geared towards environmental issues, um, and um, it's kind of well known for that. I think it, they've been doing that for maybe a decade or more already. Um, so you know, she's an ideal intern. I mean, she's already ha- has all the passions and interests, yeah. that, you know, we would expect. So um, we've been really fortunate in that regard. For sure. Um, so for, I, I'm very curious, how do we fix this? Like, how do we really <laughs> tackle? I mean, it, that is really like, um, and I'm sure you've been around for much longer than Jack and I have been. 
And it just feels like this constant like burden of like, all right, this like planet is definitely not going to be okay very soon. Um, and I'm sure you've taken, you've taken a stance, like you've taken a um, step towards like, and there's so many different facets of like places you can tackle. You can tackle the fossil fuel industry. You can tackle um, overconsumption of meat. You can tackle like by plastic and like um, how companies run and you can tackle oil. And there's just, there's all these like different ways to tackle and you've taken like one approach to it, but um, what's your take without, obviously without getting too um, political or anything, but what's your take? Well, I, you know, you almost have to get political in, in some way um, because, it, it, you know, in many ways, everything is politics. But I wanted to say that um, it may not be as bad as you think um, because, I mean, we've been in it for nine years, so and we've been in it every day. Um, and so we see the changes and they're pretty subtle, you know, they're, they're certainly not day to day, but we see the changes month to month and year to year and things are getting better. There's no question about it. And, and I think we're in the best position to see that because we're, we're knocking on doors every day, looking for business, talking to people, trying to convince them to get rid of their plastic packaging. Um, so no one's in a better position than we are to, to see that. And they are getting better. They are getting better. Um, they're way better, as you already acknowledged, in Europe. Um, and that's why a lot of our business comes from Europe. And for one reason, in Europe, there is legislation to support cleaning up the environment. Here, here, companies are not compelled. Here, the pressure usually comes from consumers. Companies will make changes if their consumers are in an uproar. Um, because they don't want to lose their business. Um, but they're not under any pressure by the government, state, local, federal, to change their evil ways. Um, it's, the pressure comes from their consumers. Um, and many are feeling that pressure, but many, many are not. Now, in Europe, it's different. They're feeling the pressure from their governments. Their governments have set targets and have determined you will be out of plastic by X date. You will be this. And those are goals they need to meet or, or there are huge penalties to pay. We don't have those here. And those penalties are stiff ones. And that's the reason that um, they're so motivated in Europe. And, and the governments have established those penalties because they realize that, you know, um, left to their own devices, corporations are not going to move fast. They're going to move, you know, at their own economic interest speed. Um, so in Europe, they figured out a long time ago that companies need a bit of an incentive to move a little faster. Um, in this case, the incentive is a bit of a negative one. It's a penalty, um, but whatever it takes. And um, I don't know how far we are from having that here. Uh, we may get a little closer starting in November, maybe we can all feel like we're getting a little closer to having that kind of an awareness here. Uh, but right now, that's, that's probably so far off the agenda of the federal government that it can't be seen. But, um, but I would say just, you know, keep doing what you're doing, keep talking about it, and, um, and rest assured, it is getting better. It, it really is. But by no means is it is it is it speeding along? <laughs> mm -hmm. Right. But wait, so like like so. But when you look at the numbers percent, I haven't, which is why I'm asking you about them right now. But um, like, what would you say um we need to tackle in order for it to be um like what is what is priority number one in terms of how to reduce the effects of climate change? Is it taking on the fossil fuel industry? Is it promoting um vegetarianism or veganism or is it um reducing down on plastic or is it some combination of all of them you know i'm i'm kind of relying uh on you to share some of your numbers with me you know i i'm i'm in one piece of that as you acknowledged you know reducing reducing the amount of plastic that we manufacture and use um, um do i think that's the biggest contribution to climate change i don't think it is actually i mean i think it is a a contributor. There's no question about it. But um, I have to believe that um, 
you know, that there are other fo fossil fuel related uh, industries that are bigger contributors. Why, why don't you share some of those numbers with me? Right. I was saying I haven't. I haven't. Oh, you haven't. Oh, I thought you yeah, said I that. haven't looked at so much. Is why I was like asking you. I, I've just told no, no. like the typical, like, of course, like fossil fuel industry is doing a lot of it. Um, like maybe a switch to electric cars would do something. And this is just like what you've been hearing. Yeah. Um, so I was wondering if you had any takes on like what you uh, thought might be. Um, honestly, I'm, I'm so, my focus is so narrow. I, I, I really can't speak to that intelligently. I, I mean, I know we're making a difference by reducing the amount of plastic and that, you know, plastic is all fossil fuel related uh, and derived, but um, do I think it's the biggest contributor? It probably isn't the biggest contributor, but that's, that's certainly no reason why we shouldn't continue our fight to remove single use plastic from our lives. But uh, sure. I doubt if it's our single biggest contributor. And I, I see kind of me and Misha's generation nowadays is stepping up to a lot of those causes and it's kind of banding together um, in a lot of ways to try to promote change. So do you think that this kind of new generation who who's had enough of a lot of the environmental problems will be the one that wants to change the legislature and to make uh, change more that's long lasting and permanent rather than just like a, a quick fix? Yeah, I do. I do. I, I absolutely do. I mean, I mean, years ago, students your age had really had no interest in this. It just wasn't on their agenda at all. So I do think, you know, you and students to follow you will all be contributors to make, maybe, maybe some exponential, you know, change in what we're doing now. But um, I, I'm, I'm hopeful about that. I really am. Well, what I worry so much about our generation, though, is that, like, what can we fix? Right. And I think that, like, um, I don't know if you're familiar with um, Hassan Mihaj. He's like a, he's like a comedian um, who hosted a Netflix talk show um, for a couple. Oh, of yeah. Seasons. No, I'm very familiar with it. I yeah. like him a lot. Yeah. Right. And so at the end of one of his episodes, he's talking about he's like, there's so much to pick. There's so much to fight for. Like, are we, how like how is our generation going to tackle? I don't know, just to name a couple like racial inequality, um, gun control environmental standards, um, income inequality, the school to prison pipeline, there's so many more, but um, like we, you can't pick all of them. And then even within like environmental reform, we just talked about like four different ways right. that you can tackle environmental reform. So what I worry a lot about my generation is that we're gonna get too caught up in like trying to fix everything and then fix nothing because yeah. we're trying to do everything at the same time um, and, you know, obviously putting 10% into 10 different things is not as good as putting 100% into one thing. And so, I don't know. But, if you, but it, it, if you explore all of these areas with an eye toward focusing on one of them, um, I think that's the best approach. I mean, explore them. Something's going to jump out <clears throat> and, <coughs> excuse me, something's going to jump out and really resonate with you because of who you are and you know your own personal interests um you know I, honestly i wouldn't worry about it just explore them all and and see which what feels best and then focus on that absolutely you can't fix everything Fo focus on what appeals to you the most and and do your best um you can't ask for more than that i mean that if you did that you'd be fine and i i think you know, people will gravitate toward what interests them, you know, what, what resonates with their, their own lives and issues, issues that are particularly personal for them. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm, I'm sure, I'm sure um, that you won't end up sort of wasting your energy diffused over 20 different causes. I, 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 I doubt that that'll be the case. Good to know. Good to know. Yeah. Um, so we're kind of just talking about young people in general. We're thinking about how is like, can you describe to us that environment of constant competition in that San Francisco area? Um, and especially you starting out, being an entrepreneur itself is already so difficult, especially starting out. Um, and now I feel like because of just your age, a lot of people would underestimate you um, or in some cases, maybe even like overestimate you and think that you like should be like doing something else besides being an entrepreneur. Um, <laughs> almost giving you like backhanded compliments, like, oh, shouldn't you be like managing part of a company instead of like starting your business? Um, and so how did you really deal with that like competitiveness? Because 
um, I don't know, Silicon Valley is chugging out 20 year olds <laughs> faster than a lot. Oh, of yeah. Yeah. How did you go with that? Well, you know, the interesting thing is um, that there, um, I don't experience any ageism whatsoever in my business. Um, at most of my dealings are with clients or potential clients and they could care less whether I was your age or my age. They want a good deal. They want what they want to get, whatever it is they're paying for. They want it to be of good quality and on time and age means absolutely nothing. Now, no one's, no one's ever said that much to me, you know, in those many words to me, but there's, there's, there's no issue about age. It's about delivery. Can, can you give me what we're contracting to do with you? And is it of good quality? Is it on time? Is it a good price? And does it help me in the marketplace? I don't care if you're 65 or 25. And I really think that's the prevailing, um, you know, that's the prevailing way of thinking. Um, the ageism is, you know, that, that's more of a, uh, you know, it, it's a position that individual companies take. You know, they want, um, I think Mark Zuckerberg said many years ago, um, I'll bet he's thinking about that now too. He said something about, you know, I wouldn't hire anyone over 30 because their ideas are so old or something like that. Of course, um, now that he's over 30, I, I, he's probably moved that up to wouldn't hire anyone over 40 or something. But um, yeah, I think that's more of an individual kind of corporate uh, position and a bad one at that. Because when you hire, when you hire somebody my age, you hire someone with 40 years of experience. Um, and it's not necessarily all old experience. It's 40 years of experience, whatever you want to call it. Um, so, um, you know, I, I, you know, I just don't see, of course, I'm looking at it from my perspective, but I just don't see the wisdom in not hiring older employees. Mm -hmm. Just don't see it. Yeah. You're, you're, you're getting way more than you pay, than you're paying for when you hire someone with 40 years of experience. I totally can, agree. I mean, if they can do the job that you're hiring them for, whether, it, you know, whether it's, a, you know, an engineering job or coding or whatever it is, don't, don't assume just because somebody's 60 years old that they can't code. I mean, if someone can demonstrate to you that they can code, why wouldn't you hire someone with another 40 years of experience? Imagine how much they've seen of, of, of commerce and the world and what they would bring to that job rather than, you know, someone who's, to quote you guys, only been to parties and football games, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that's such an interesting perspective when you not only look at the um, the older age group, but also the younger age group, because I think a lot of people, excuses younger people make is, oh, like they, they, I'm too young for them. They don't think that I'll be able to handle it. But I think a lot of the time, really it's that they may not have the skill set yet. And so they need to focus on gaining the skill set or gaining the ability to create that deal that they need or to deliver on the promises that they want to make to a given company or a given client. And if right. they don't have the ability to do that, that's why they're not getting hired. It's not because, oh, you're only 21. It's because, hey, maybe you don't have the right tools and experiences yet. So go out and find those tools, go out and learn those things before you try to go into this like this big industry that you think is like trying to keep you out because of your age. Because in reality, exactly. most people don't worry about age. They worry about, can you do the job well and can you get it done right? Exactly. And here's another, here's another factor that people don't talk about, which I, which I think is, is really critical. Um, you know, back in the day, certainly in, in the previous generation to me, you know, my, my father had the same job his entire life. He was, he was a postal worker. He, he did it his entire life. And a lot of folks in my age group have had, well, maybe not the single job all their lives, but they've, they've only had a handful of jobs, maybe one or two. And the idea was, you know, you put in your 20 or 30 years and you retire. Um, you know, the way most, I shouldn't lump everyone together, but the way many civil service employees talk, if you talk to 
you know, sanitation workers and transportation workers, certainly cops and firemen. I mean, they seem abnormally focused on their retirement. I've only got five more years till my 20 years or um, it's all about retiring or something, which is a dreadful mindset to have. But if you really think about perhaps in more in a corporate vein, young employees today in their 20s and 30s and even 40s probably, they're not in jobs for their whole lives. They're probably there a couple of years and they're moving on. I mean, my own daughter works in the publishing industry. She's probably had at least 10 jobs. And each time she moves on for a bigger salary, better job, higher paying position, more title, more important, um, probably more than 10 jobs, quite frankly. Um, and so to not hire someone because they're older, because, oh, he's only going to be able to give me three more years and then he's going to want to retire. That's bull. You're not going to get more than three years out of a 20-year-old. Yeah, right. Yeah, you seem perfectly comfortable hiring someone who's 25. I guarantee you he'll be gone when he's 29. Right. Uh, so well, why not hire someone who's 60 who can give you five years, and he already brings 40 years of experience with him? Mm -hmm. It just doesn't make any sense. Well, that's There's, for sure. The time is over of corporations like really caring about their employees. Yeah. Um, and that's why like it's you're a sucker if you stay behind. <laughs> like I, at least now, obviously, like in my even in my parents like generation of working um, and even like in your generation of working, it was that idea of like stick with the company for 15, 20 years and call it call it. <laughs> um, but that time is definitely left. And you're a sucker if you stay at a company for 15, 20 years because they're not increasing your salary as much as the, like, the company next door. You're not going to rise in the ranks there. Um, and it's weird because you just reminded me of like, I have a friend who always talks about how, well, I should, I should start earlier. Um, we watched a video the other day um, where they brought in all these people that were maybe in their like, like between the ages of 19 and 30. Um, and they asked him like, what age is old to you? And some of them were like, I don't know, late 20s, early 30s. <laughs> some people were like, I think the highest someone went to was 50. They were like, wow. if I'm 55, like I'm old. Um, and then they brought in people that were like 60, 70, 80, and they paired them up. And they were like, each of you teach each, teach each other something that you're good at. Um, and then they went through. And then afterwards, they asked again, like, what, like, what do you think is old now? And these people were like 60, 70, 80. And so now all these people are like, yeah, like I really understand. I just got to show like, I have a friend that always says in our generation, at least you are so much more likely to have multiple careers in your lifetime. Like you can really jump from one area to another. Um, right. Not very, just, very easily. not just multiple jobs in the same field, multiple careers even. Right. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So the, the myth of not hiring someone because they're too old and they, they don't have that many years to give you is just bull. It's just bull. Mm -hmm. They probably end up having more years to give you, frankly, than some 20, 20 something who's going to want to jump in three years if you're not promoting them and, you know, moving them along the way they, they feel they need to be. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. For sure. Um, and I, I know we touched upon this a little earlier, but I'm wondering, um, how do you specifically toe that line in between like your job and your, like, I guess, work-life balance is kind of the question that I'm asking. And how do you really deal with sure. that? Um, and obviously I think for you specifically, and like, I'm speaking for you right now, so correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that you generally have like family as more of a priority than work or just like life outside of work takes priority over some of the work. Um, and so well, how do you deal with that? Or like, I don't know, what do you think more? more I think... I think because of the way I the way I approach work, as you call it, it, it's not as black and white as like work and private life. Mm -hmm. um, mine, there's it's more shades of gray. Everything everything is a different kind of shade of gray, and it doesn't feel such a like such a dramatic difference between work and non-work. After all, um, I mean, for instance, you know. I, I can go shopping with my wife and decide to pop into a Starbucks and, and get a cup of coffee and send out a few emails to customers while she's next door, you know, buying groceries or something like that. For sure. um, 
you know, so I, I kind of brought my office with me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I feel like my whole day is that way. I, I um, because of the nature of our work, we get a lot of, we get a lot of uh, correspondence from Europe. So when I wake up in the morning um, is when they're long since gone to bed. I'll find, I'll find a lot of emails that they sent me overnight and they'll be right. waiting for me in the morning. So I'm usually busy in the morning and then, you know, there's a quiet time and maybe I get busy again later in the day when I want to make sure they have emails uh, that they can see the next day when they get to work in Europe or in China. Um, so it's, it's scattered throughout the day is, you know, it's, probably never more than two or three hours at a time. And then mm-hmm. I'm off doing something else. Yeah. Um, yeah, I would say different. It's all different shades of gray. It, it, it doesn't feel like it has to be a balancing act. It's more of a incorporation. Kind of, it's just a part of your life a little more. Yeah. Like a that's, mosaic. That's definitely the life that Jack and I are trying to build. Yeah. It's definitely yeah. Like what we, what we want. And that is kind of what we're doing with the podcast. Um, it is more of like, I'll wake up. Um, Jack will wake up. We wake up fairly early. So like first thing I do is I'll send emails to guests. So like you probably got my email kind of early. I don't really remember, but um, no. <laughs> yeah. So I send emails to guests earlier in the morning. And then as they trickle back in, I'll schedule. And then uh, Jack and I will prep a day or two before. And then we do the interview. And then I'm like, I'm doing other things in between all of that. Um, whether it be schoolwork. I really enjoy learning. So I just learn like <laughs> I, I don't necessarily enjoy the bureaucracy of school, but I do enjoy learning a lot. Yeah. So like, I just like, maybe, whether it's schoolwork or reading or like, you know, family or friends or whatever. Um, and I really do enjoy that a lot. Just that intermeshing of everything. And is your, is your school uh, online now or? or yeah, or- which makes it 10 times better. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> like intermeshing things. It's almost giving us like a trial run for the future. And I think that gray area you're talking about is how a lot of people are going to be living their lives and kind of should kind of structure it because in a way it allows you to decide what priority is this, what priority is that and structure your day for an overall successful day. Not just, oh, I want to have a good business day or I want to have a good day with my family today and having the ability to wake up. First, I do some like work on myself. I read, I work out and then say, okay, I got to shoot out some emails and then go to school, but then I have an hour and a half break. And then what can I do in the hour and a half break in order to do some other work I need to do? And it's being able to fill in those times with stuff that I not only need to do, but I also enjoy. So it's not just like a mundane task all, every day. And I understand that there is a certain time in your life where you need to kind of put your head down and work hard. But at the same time, you should be doing things each day that you enjoy. And that gray area allows you to mold how you want. It's not like right. a straightforward, you need to go nine to five and work in order to be successful. It's, hey, whatever you will give you in yourself and your family, the most happiness each and every day is what you need to do. Don't listen to what anyone else tells you how to structure your day. Right. Right. Excellent. Excellent. Yeah. I think, yeah, I think uh, you guys are headed for some really interesting lives. I can, I can tell already um, um, your passion and your approach to it. Um, I'm excited for you. I'm excited for you. Thank you. I appreciate it. And kind of going off that, because obviously we want to have some success of our own and you talked about in your Ted talk, how there's the percentage of entrepreneurs that are successful in their seventies is like somewhere of like 70% and of people that are um, younger, say like 20, 30 years old is only 28%. So what either qualities or what do you think are a necessity that those, the seven year olds or the older generation has that makes them successful that say the, uh, the younger people may need to learn or figure out? Well, I, I think, um, I, you know, I've been asked this before, of course. I, I think there's two things primarily. One is, is just straightforward. I mean, you're bringing 40-plus years of experience with you mm-hmm. to whatever venture you're launching. Um, that's got to, you know, that's got to help. The 28-year-old is bringing, you know, five years of experience. So you're way ahead uh, in that particular regard. The other thing is more just practicality. When you're 65 years old and you're launching a venture, you kind of want to get it right because, you know, without sounding too macabre, uh, you don't have that many new ventures left in you when you're 65. When you're 25, okay, tried it, it failed, off to the next one. 
and you feel like, you know, you've got a whole lifetime of new ventures ahead of you, which you do. But when you're 65, you don't feel like you have that advantage. Um, and so I think you really, you really try to nail it from the get-go um, and make sure that it, that it works. And I think that plus the experience that you bring to it almost guarantees that you're going to be successful. And 70%, like I said in my TED talk, of course, it wouldn't be true for the last couple of years, but I, it was like, you know, that you'd be the Golden State Warriors of entrepreneurism if you could nail it 70% of the time. Right. Mm-hmm. Do you think it's okay um, for those 28-year-olds to be a little bit more risky because they have that time? Because you think that maybe because um, they're so young, they're okay with taking more risk, which results in maybe not as um, not as a high success rate. Um, yeah, I you know I, I you know I have a friend who thinks that that being that young and launching a business is a mistake that you should wait. Um, I mean, I, I don't I don't think anyone's going to pay attention to him but he really feels like you're more you know you know you're more likely to be successful if you just wait get some experience do you know do all those other things and then bring all that knowledge and background to a new venture um so you know i mean someone who's going to drop out of drop out of school to launch their business is you know is thinking quite differently than that you know they're they they can't do it soon enough. And I, I guess there's something about our culture that's, you know, compelling people to do that. Like, like I can't stay in school. If I wait another two years, somebody else is going to launch this same idea. I want to be there first. I think we all have to acknowledge what's behind all this. Um, greed. <laughs> I mean, I, it may be, you know, there may be other things behind it too, you know, the need for the need to be successful, important, or, you know, power, whatever it is. But greed is one of the biggest factors. I mean, why would you, why would you give up an opportunity to learn? And, you know, um, the, the, the subjects of your choosing at a university with professors who are at the top of their game, why would you throw all that away just to start a software company that figures out the best time to make a martini or something like that. I mean, it's, it's really, it's really foolish unless you're just damn greedy. I mean, I think greed is behind most of what is going on. Being there first, being their best, you know, capturing the market. It's all about the money. Why do you think that is? I don't know. I think it, it's, it's, you know, I, I'm not suggesting that capitalism isn't the answer. I mean, it seems to me, you know, it seems to me there's a balance somewhere between capitalism and socialism and and maybe a few other isms. But capitalism in and of itself is definitely not the answer. It, it's just created so much of a have and have not society and um, just a lot of people working so hard to do things that they're going to kick themselves in the ass about later in their lives. You know, there's that, there's that wonderful silly comment that uh, um, what, how's it go? Oh, it's, you know, it's etched on somebody's tombstone. Um, If, uh, all, or something to the effect that, uh, you know, I, um, something about going to the, being in the office, like uh, all things considered, um, you know, I, I shouldn't have spent that much time in the office or something. Mm-hmm. I, I didn't mm-hmm. say it the right way, but, um, right. but, you know, but when it's on your tombstone, it's a little late to be putting your priorities in order. Well, what's, exactly. what's ridiculous, I think, is that so many people are taught just differently and they're taught, they're taught in a way that makes them suckers to the system, right? So they're taught in a way of um, work for other people so you'll be happy, um, work a nine to five so you'll be happy, you'll have X, Y, Z, you'll have some money, 
Um, and I think we need to make that trade-off. And we talked about this earlier. We need to make that change between looking at time, like a time money trade-off and a work money trade-off. Um, and I think absolutely that is one of, one of the reasons for why, um, why it, that system is just so like you look at inner city, or like inner city communities, right? They're not, they're not doing too well. Um, and I forgot who was saying this, but somebody talks about how like the number one reason why a lot of people end up in poverty because their parents were in poverty is because they look to what their parents did. Um, and like, obviously this is taking out everything, like systemically everything that has happened to those communities. But just thinking about like people who are in poverty, if you, if you're a kid, you look around you and you're taught to literally um, do what's being done around you. And so obviously you're going to end up um, in poverty again. Um, and so I think that like the way, the way the rich teach their kids about money and the way the poor people teach their kids about money is very different. Um, the rich teach their kids about investing. They teach them about making other people work for you or making your money work for you. Um, and poor people and middle-class people teach their kids about trading time for money. And that's the disconnect. Um, and poor people view rich people as, oh, you cheated the system. <laughs> but the rich people view the poor, poor people as you don't understand the system, the game that we're playing. Um, and that's the disconnect there. And that's that's one of the reasons for why pe like people are the way they are right now. Um, and I think, well, I think we're going to learn that. I think we need to start start defining success differently. I you know I consider myself successful, um, not because you know not because my my company landed on the Fortune 500 list. I'm successful because I love what I'm doing. I can't wait to get up every morning. My company is growing every year. We're doing good work. We're doing something that benefits society. That, to me, is successful. I have a happy, contented life. I'm challenged by what I'm doing. I'm happy with what I'm doing. My family is proud of me. That is successful. But if we're going to keep defining success as, you know, how many decimal points, uh, you know, how many zeros there are to the left side of the decimal point, that's not success. That's, you know, that's success if, you know, you want to get a heart attack or a stroke or right. you want your kids to despise you because all you do is work and think about money and have no time for them. That's not success. That's well, not success. I, I think, I think a lot of it um, also just comes down to self-awareness and knowing what you want, because some people, that's their way of keeping score, seeing the dollar amount and seeing like how they're doing per se. And, but I think if you understand like what you want or like you're, you're to the fact that you were saying, knowing that you're happy, knowing that you're creating some sort of meaning, that's where you'll find um, that true purpose that brings you true joy and happiness. And then sometimes to see the effect that you're making, obviously there is some sort of dollar amount or some sort of score connected to it. But right. um, in my opinion, a lot of it is connected to, you can see your competition now. There's the whole social media thing, the whole where you can see the person that is doing the same, same exact thing you're doing on the other side of the world just because they posted a picture about it or they said the, the type of profit they had this past year. And so now you can see that person. Whereas before, before they had the technology, you were just sticking to your own business and your own platform and saying, oh, like our competition um, like maybe did this in the past year, but now you see it day to day. And so having that like, oh, I need to catch up. They just bought their new office. They just bought their new firm or, or this person just got this new car or whatever. That's in my opinion, maybe where the greed comes from and um, where that competitive drive comes from in a lot of people that just want to outperform others instead of um, searching internally of what they want themselves. Right, right, exactly. All right, Jack, um, if you have anything else, otherwise I think we can wrap it up. Um, yeah, I just wanted to just kind of ask you, how can you, this is a very broad question, you may not even have the answer, but what's your advice to someone who wants to structure their lives around purpose and just internal happiness? Wow. It's <laughs> a great question. <laughs> and you're right. It is a broad one. Oh boy. Um, I, I honestly don't know how to answer that except that um, I guess that, man, this might be naive, but I, I, I guess if someone really wants to structure their lives in that way that you described, Jack, um, 
I guess, you know, I, I feel somewhat confident that they will because most people don't even know enough to say that, you know, they don't, that, that, that's not, that's not the way they, that's not the strategy that they've laid out for themselves, if any strategy, um, but, to, but to actually want to, you know, gain a feeling of, you know, internal happiness and purpose. And uh, I have a feeling anyone who poses a question like that, such as yourself, because you did pose the question, that there's a darn good chance you will have that kind of life because it seems it's obviously an important, it's important to you. I'm, I'm, I'm betting you will. I sure hope you do because it really beats the alternative. Mm -hmm. It really does. For sure. Um, this, this has been great, guys. I really, uh, I really appreciate it. I think your questions have been, your questions have been superb, you know, and, um, and, you know, coming from where they are, from, from, Coming from where they do, from you two guys, um, they're even more superb because I mean, it speaks volumes about about um, the kind of lives that that you're going to be leading and mm -hmm. and are leading now. So um, uh, I'm thrilled thrilled to participate and uh, and wish you the best. For sure. Awesome. Well, we do have two questions um, to wrap up. These are questions that we ask each and every person. Okay. Um, that we interview. So I'll let Namisha take the first one. Go ahead. Not going to be like my favorite fruit or something like that. <laughs> Not far off. I'm kidding. <laughs> um, we're asking, so we ask um, every guest, what are two books that have really had an impact on you that you've read? Two books that had an impact on me. Wow. I didn't know you'd be throwing this at me. So you're going to have to give me a little, you're going to have to give me a little time. That's all good. Um, I, you know, it's a tough one because I've been reading a lot lately. I went through a period, I went through a bit of a, of a, of a desert reading. And now I've been reading a lot lately, but I don't know that I've been reading more for enjoyment rather than for impact on me. Um, Oh boy. It doesn't necessarily have to be like as an impact on you. If there's also just a book, I feel like even with books that are um Well, I'll tell you, I'll tell you you know, something I, I, I read on the recommendation of somebody else. Um and I and I don't know that it's changed my life at all. It's really more but it's turned out to be way more educational than I expected. I thought it would just be entertaining. And it's a, it's a trilogy by a British writer whose name is Ken Follett, F-O-L-L-E-T-T. -T. Um, he's, he's written three books and um, I can't remember what the trilogy is called, the Century Trilogy or something. They all take, they take place in the 20th century. They begin early in the 20th century, long before World War I even began. And they end at the end of the 20th century. So after the fall of, of the Iron Curtain and all that, and it follows the lives of four families in the U.S., in England, in Germany, and in the Soviet Union. It follows yeah. the lives of these four families as they go through the decades of the 20th century and you almost feel like you've got a backseat to history. You're watching the decision to drop the atom bomb, the decision, you know, to, to turn the lights out in London during the air raids of World War II. Uh -huh. um, it's just been an amazing, <clears throat> an, an amazing backseat to history. And uh, I, I think it's, it's great reading. For sure. Anyway. Okay. I think I could have done better if, if I had prepared for the question. No, I, that's fine. No that's worries. Okay. Um, the final question that we have for you, Paul, is if you could give one piece of advice to your high school self, what would it be? <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> one piece of advice to my high school self. Um, 
<laughs> you know, I can, I, I can, I'll give you a, I'll give you a, a thoughtful answer after you allow me the, and this is, this is, you're taping this, right? So you mm -hmm. can edit this. Mm -hmm. Sure. Okay. Well, the first piece of advice I would, the first thing that came into my head was wake the fuck up. Would you please? <laughs> <laughs> um, but I guess the, the thoughtful answer is sort of a cleaned up version of that. Um, you know, basically get serious. You, you've got your whole life ahead of you here. It's time to get serious, get serious about, about a lot of different things. Um, it's not all fun and games and um, you need to get serious. And, and, and by getting serious, that doesn't eliminate the opportunity for fun and games, but um, there wasn't a, there wasn't enough of a serious element in, in my life that at that time, I really, uh, I really could have used that advice. Awesome. Well, Paul, we appreciate you coming on today. Uh, that's it for today's episode of the 5am hustle podcast. As always, guys, peace.